50? Really? Okay. Okay. okay just for a check. I mean, I don't have a cushion here, but I have one at home I could bring for next week. That's why I was asking. No, but I got a really nice cushion at home that would be very effective if you needed it. I could bring it next week. Or drop it off at your house this week. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? And then we can jump into the scriptures this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity again that we can be here. We are here because you are a merciful and gracious God. We are here because we need you. We need to be reminded of you. We need to be drawn to, into corporate worship. And so we ask that your spirit would work in our lives. Draw us close. Protect us from all the distractions that we could have in our lives at this moment, whether they are tiredness or fear or, or a discouragement or whatever the case may be, and help us to be centered on you and see all the things of our lives in light of you. So glorify yourself in our study this morning and help us. In your name I pray. Amen. We are jumping back into the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your scriptures, and I hope you do, you could turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to wrap up chapter 8 this morning, Lord willing. So we're going to look at Acts 8, verses 26 to the end of the chapter. As I said, when we got into the book of Acts, there are times when we're going to look at big chunks, and there's going to be times we're going to look at small chunks. This morning we're going to look at a big chunk, because it is a story, and we want to see the entirety of the story. It's a familiar story to many of us, if not all of us. It's the story of the eunuch and Philip. It should be a very common uh, story. But I think there's some things that we can learn and draw out of it as, inst as instructions according to what God wants us to see. So let's read the text and then we can unpack it a bit. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the, toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot, this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the, script, of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, before we jump into the text itself, I want you to notice something. Some of you are probably already starting to look at me cross-eyed a little bit. I see it over here especially. <clears throat> and because some of, your, some of your texts probably have a verse 37 in them, correct? And some don't. If you have an older text, specifically a King James text, you'll see verse 37 in there. Jim, why don't you read verse 37 real quick, out loud if you would. <laughs> Thomas, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
Okay, that's the, that's the uh, verse 37. If you don't have a King James with you right now, if you couldn't hear Jim read it because his throat was a little froggy, you can look it up a little bit later. That's verse 37. Let me, let me just make a statement about verse 37 of chapter 8 real quickly before we move into the text and study the text and, and analyze the text and see what, what God's trying to communicate to us. The reason why I didn't read verse 37, I have the ESV, it doesn't have verse 37 in it. It jumps from 36 to 38. Uh, as a matter of fact, it doesn't even have a verse 37. It, it, it has a little uh, a note there that you can see at the bottom and you can read about it. And I did some research on it as well. The reason why most of your modern translations don't have verse 37 is because, in, um, if I may just be as simple as possible, verse 37 shows up in some really, really, a couple, just a couple, really, really late manuscripts. When I say really late manuscripts, we're talking about 12th, 13th, 14th century. It doesn't show up in any manuscripts before then. It just shows up in, the, in that time frame right around the 12th, 13th, 14th century. There's very few, just a couple of the texts, uh, manuscripts that, that it shows up in. And some of that comes out of, and I'm just going to try to be really as basic as possible, um, two different theories of, of um, manuscript sources. The King James uses one manuscript source that is typically looking at later, and that doesn't make it worse, but later manuscripts, whereas your ESV, your NASB, your NIV, and a few of the other more modern translations look at the oldest of the manuscripts. And when you look at all the oldest of the manuscripts, you find that, it, uh, that that verse doesn't show up there. Is that a crisis? No, it's not a crisis at all. Uh, this happens several times throughout the scriptures. We've seen that in Mark 16 uh, before, at the end of, of Mark 16. Uh, we see that in 1 John chapter 5, one verse. We've talked about that in 1 John a little bit. Um, and there's a couple other, other passages that have this scenario, whereas the older manuscripts don't have it. Some of the newer manuscripts that the text shows up, and there's a variety of reasons why that happens. Uh, most times these texts, they show up, and then later on in, in manuscripts after that, they're removed. Even in the manuscripts, they're removed because it's identified by the scribes that that was most likely added in. And there's a variety of reasons why that would be added in. That being said, all of these passages like chapter six, uh, chapter 8, verse 30, um, 37 of, of the book of Acts um, and Mark 16 and 1 John 5. There's one verse in 1 John 5. I think it's verse 7. Um, none of them add or subtract any or disagree doctrinally. Uh, certainly the doctrinal statements of, 6, of 837 is not contrary to the scriptures. It's just as the scholars who, are, who, are put, who have in the past as well as currently put together a translation of the Bible, they wrestle with, does that really belong or does it not? And so in this case, what they did is they didn't put it in the text itself, they put it at the bottom of the page in the more modern translations for the people to evaluate. Now certainly, again, you can argue that, and I think strongly argue, that the statement of verse 37 is consistent with the rest of the scriptures. And so no problem. It's just the question is not, is it accurate or not? The question is, does it, does it actually belong in that text or not? And that's what, does that make sense? And so in some of the manuscripts, uh, many of the modern translations, they put it in the bottom instead. Make sense to everybody? So I'm going to consider it as bottom of the text, bottom of the manuscript, or bottom of the page in our discussion, recognizing that what it says is not inaccurate at all. It's very correct. So anyway, be it as it may, we're going to look at the text this morning. I just wanted to give that clarification. We have a story of Philip who was introduced earlier in the chapter. Philip was not the apostle Philip. We said he was who? Does anybody remember? Who's this Philip guy? He's one of the deacons. As a matter of fact, he's in the list of deacons in Acts chapter 6. He's the next in line. Why is he starting to become front and center at this point? Because the first one is gone, right? What happened to the first one? He was stoned. He's gone. And now Philip, the second in the list, is now speaking and ministering and becoming kind of front and center temporarily in this whole deacon thing. He's been up in um, the Samaritan area, has he not? Why is he up in the Samaritan area or up in Samaria? Why is he there? Anybody remember? 
because of the persecution, the people were driven out, the Christians, generally speaking, were driven out of Jerusalem. There's still some there, especially the apostles are there, right? And they're preaching down there and ministering to those who remain and both the unsaved and saved. But for the most part, many of the Christians are now up in the Samaria area. And at the same time that many of the Christians are up there, what happens according to the text we've already seen, what happens to the people who are lost up in Samaria? A whole boatload of them got saved, right? And so Philip is, and at the same time that, that Philip's had a great ministry up there, he's also had a problem, hasn't he? He thought someone was saved, but they what? They weren't. And who was it? Uh, the magician guy. Yeah, the magician guy. <laughs> Simon, right? That's okay. That's okay. The magician guy. He, he, the scriptures say he believed, as we talked about it a couple weeks ago, in believing he really didn't believe, right? He kind of believed a lot in the same way the, the, the uh, Satan and his, and his uh, demons believe, right? They didn't, he didn't fear like, like the demons do, but he believed for all the wrong reasons, didn't he? He believed the same way that those who were following Jesus before his crucifixion followed him. Same thing. And the evidence is clear that, that it wasn't real. But overall, Philip's ministry is quite impressive. God used him mightily in Samaria and is continuing at this point in time to use him mightily, right? But then something weird happens. This, this is an interesting scenario. You'd think, wouldn't you? You would think, just in, we've already read the text, you would think that with all the people getting saved in Samaria, the rejoicing going on in Samaria, the church is exploding in growth in Samaria, you would think that, that God's plan would be for Philip to be where? Samaria, right? Wouldn't you think? Let's, let's, let's keep Philip where things are happening, right? No, God has a different plan. So we're going to be looking at Philip, we're going to be looking at the eunuch, but we're also going to be being reminded of, of Simon in the background, because the story of Simon really, if I may just say this right up front, the story that we saw before of Simon in, in the beginning part of Acts chapter 8, and the story of the eunuch in the end of chapter 8, is a remember we say that the scriptures are full of contrast? That is the contrast. You've got one person, I'm just going to mention it, we're going to get off of him, we're probably not going to mention Simon again, but it's really important that we see it. You've got in the previous passage, you've got Simon, and he's got, although he's a Samaritan, so therefore he doesn't have all the blessings, right? He doesn't have all the natural blessings, as Paul describes himself in Philippians. He doesn't have all those, does he? He's not a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's not a Pharisee and all the rest, but he certainly has some amazing blessings, doesn't he? He's got the, the, the other, other um, uh, deacons up there, including Philip. He's got all these Christians that have surrounded him. The ministry of, of the gospel is prevalent. It's, it's happening everywhere. It's spreading like wildfire through, through Samaria. You've got not just uh, one or two people, but you've got a massive explosion of worship going on. There's rejoicing everywhere. Is there not up in Samaria? You've got not only rejoicing going on everywhere, much rejoicing, the scriptures describe it. You also have a whole lot of what? Signs and wonders going on up there? I mean, Philip's, I mean, I'm sorry, Simon's got, I mean, if anybody has it, he does at this point, right? This is the, this is the, the culture that he currently was swimming in, correct? And he missed it completely. He missed it completely. And here we have the eunuch who has everything but that. Right? Let me just explain who the eunuch is. The thing we know about the eunuch is he is what? Ethiopian. Now that's not Ethiopian as you think about Ethiopia today. We think about Ethiopia today as being over by the, uh, next to the Mediterranean on the, on the um, west side somewhere of, uh, of Egypt. Uh, but that's not the Ethiopia they're referencing here. In this day, there was two Ethiopias, believe it or not. There was that Ethiopia, but there was also another Ethiopia below Egypt, at the south side of Egypt, and it extended all the way to Sudan. It was a relatively large area, very closely connected to um, and friends with Egypt, but it was south. 
uh, mo most likely, or at least somewhat likely, uh, is where the Queen of Sheba came from when she came up and visited Solomon. That being said, there's no light there, is there? Or if there is, there's some sort of residual light of Judaism from where? Maybe the Queen of Sheba. But if for the most part, it's pretty spiritually dark down there. He doesn't have all that fellowship. He doesn't have the signs and wonders. He doesn't have the, the deacons. He doesn't have all these saved people around him. And yet we find this lone guy, this eunuch, we don't even know his name, who comes to faith in Christ in the storyline. And it's an interesting study in contrast to seem like here's exhibit A has all the opportunity, all the everything and nothing results. And here's this other guy who has nothing and everything results. Right? It's an interesting study in contrast. I won't say any more about that, but just you can process that through on your own. But Philip is ministering. So we're looking at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch for the most part. Philip is ministering up in Samaria. And lo and behold, verse 26 out of the blue, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip. He appears to Philip. Some people argue it's just an internal thing. It says an angel of the Lord said to Philip. I leave it at that. An angel of the Lord, most likely I would argue, appeared to Philip, said to him, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. The end of the quote is at the word Gaza. Um, Gaza in this text is the same location, generally speaking, as the Gaza that is today. Just to give you a, a picture. Philip is north of, of um, Jerusalem, up in Samaria. The angel says, I want you to leave Samaria, and I want you to go down to the desert road. The desert road that runs between Jerusalem and Samaria. I'm sorry, Jerusalem and, and Gaza. And it, even to this day, is pretty desolate. But back in that day, it was really desolate. Does that statement, by the way, it's interesting, in this text, there's nothing that the angel says to, to Philip that explains the reason why. Right? There's nothing. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Abraham. Very good. Abraham. Now, he actually told... The angel actually told Abraham why, didn't he? Go and I will give you a land. I will send you to a land that I will what? Show you. He didn't tell him where it was at. He just said, start walking and I'll take you to that land that's going to belong to you. In this case, even more dramatic, he just tells Philip, go. Down to this deserted place. Right? I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes for a second. Philip's had this phenomenal ministry. And God says, Philip, I want you to go out in the desert. There's nobody there. There's nothing happening. Now, the road is certainly a, a road where, um, where commerce travels. But outside of commerce, there's nothing going on there. As they travel through Gaza from Egypt, through Gaza up through Jerusalem, then up into up into Syria and Lebanon, there's all sorts of commerce that's going that way. But other than that, there's just nothing. It's not like a highway like we think of today. People going on vacation and all the rest of it. That's not what it is. And by the way, don't miss the point when when the angel of the Lord tells Philip to go down to this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza, he's not hopping on public transportation. How's he getting there, you think? He's walking. It's a rough way. These roads are not nice roads. And it's probably a good 70 miles at least. God said, I want you to take a walk. 70 miles. And by the way, you know the storyline in the scriptures about inns and things like that. There's no inns along that road at this time. This is desert. There's nothing. And God says to Philip, through the angel, I want you to go down there into this desert place. 
Verse 27. What does it say? He rose and went. <laughs> That's all it says. He rose and went. He rose and went. Interesting. It sounded like an act of faith. It sounded like an act of trust. A little bit. Just a tad. I'm going from this great ministry to nothing. Why? Because God wants me to. Interesting perspective. We'll come back to that. What's that? Oh, there's no question. He's speaking to him. Yeah. And he rose and went. So it probably was a good week of walking at least. He rose and went. And he got down there. And when he got down there, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, was in charge of all her treasure. So now we're introduced a little bit more to who this guy is. This guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, is a guy who is in charge of Candace's wealth. It's the official wealth of Candace, who is the um, uh, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Candace is like, the name Candace is more of a title. It's not really a specific person, although it would be a specific person, but it's a title, just like, just like the pharaoh is not a specific person like 85 people carried the name Pharaoh over the years, over the centuries. I don't know if it's really 85. I'm just throwing a number out. Um, same thing with the Candace. There was many, many Candaces. But whatever the current Candace was, the, uh, the queen of the Ethiopians, this Ethiopian, who is a eunuch, which means he's been castrated, as an official, so that he could be an official position among uh, the um, the uh, government, um, and, and it can't be. Well, it's, we won't get into the specifics of it all, but but uh, anyway, so he's in charge of all of her treasure. That's simply said. He's a guy of real importance. This is not this is not a slave. You would not put a slave in charge of you. This is a guy that's really important in the Ethiopian structure of government. It goes on, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Interesting statement. Remember, it's dark down there, spiritually. Very dark. But this guy, this Ethiopian, this eunuch, had come up to Jerusalem to worship, which begs the question, why would the Ethiopian eunuch come up to Jerusalem to worship? And the answer is several fold. Number one, most likely, almost guaranteed, somewhere along the line, he was introduced to Judaism. Somewhere along the line, again, I said it already, maybe through the uh, descendants of the Queen of Sheba, maybe he himself was a descendant. Who knows? We don't know. All we know is somehow he was introduced to Judaism and it was important enough to him that at one point in time he decided to travel. And in his case, it's not just 50 to 70 miles. In his case, he traveled probably a good five to 600 miles at least to get up to Jerusalem to go to worship. So being in Jerusalem was important to him. Now, because of the distance... He wouldn't have just done this just for a day visit, would he? This must be something really significant that's bringing him up to Jerusalem. Now, what, would you, what do you think, I want you to think a little bit, what do you think would be the significant event that would bring him up to worship in Jerusalem? Ideas? Passover, religious holiday. More, more likely than anything else, it's Passover. He came up during Passover to worship. Now, it's also important to understand, this guy is Ethiopian. He's not a full proselyte, most likely. And the reason why he's not a full proselyte, even though he may thoroughly believe in, in the, in the, uh, according to the Judaistic religion, is because he's a eunuch. And in the Old Testament, a eunuch couldn't actually come into the temple. But this guy... 
had embraced the Jew, the Jewish religion, traveled five seven hundred five to seven hundred miles, if not more, all the way up to Jerusalem to worship, and he was there at Passover. Now that's an interesting statement, though, that because now he's returning. We find out next, right? He went up for Passover, most likely, and now he's returning. But wait a second, Passover was at least 70 or 80 days earlier, wasn't it? It was at least 70 or 80 days earlier. Because what happened? What happened right at the Passover weekend? Christ was crucified, right? Jesus was crucified. Three days later, rose again, and then he had 40 days more ministry, correct? And then now we're, and then, and then several days later, we have. Pentecost, and then we have how many days are after that? We may still be within weeks. Okay? We still may be within weeks. More than likely, he was up for Passover. If he was up there worshiping during Passover, what do you think he would have heard about? What do you think he would have observed? What do you think he would have Learned. He would have learned about Jesus. He may very well, we don't know, he may very well have been at the cross. He was there, most likely, at the day, at, 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 at Passover. He was there worshiping, and then he most likely would have been there to observe the ruckus. He may have even been there for the triumphal entry. Who knows? We don't know. He may very well have heard Jesus speaking after his crucifixion and his resurrection. We don't know. What we know is that most likely this was a time frame when he was there. He's been there long enough that now it's finally time he's got to get back to work, right? So it's time for him to head back. And we also know at this point that <clears throat> he hasn't yet believed in Jesus, has he? So for all that he heard and observed, including the beginnings of persecution of the Christians, he has not believed. But we also know something else. And we see it in just a little bit. What's he doing? He's reading Isaiah. And interestingly enough, where is he reading Isaiah? Isaiah 53. Now wait a second. This is really interesting, and most people don't think about this. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have them. But the scriptures are very clear. He's reading Isaiah 53. Why is that? Because during the worship, the scriptures were important enough to him they were valuable enough to him that as the scriptures are being read, you know what he's doing? He's writing furiously. Yeah, exactly. He's writing furiously. Why? Because the scriptures are really important to him. Because God's truth is absolutely crucial to him. Remember where he's going. It's dark there. He doesn't have all that scripture. He's writing furiously because he treasures the scripture. And now he's on his way back. And so he's returning, it, the scriptures say. Verse 28, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now let me give a little fill-in of the background story here. It says, and was returning, seated in his chariot. Now, it sounds like, Here's where we fall in, into modern times and we're thinking. <clears throat> like if you were driving here to church this morning, or let me say you weren't driving, let's say you were riding in, church, in the car to church this morning because somebody else was driving, you could, unless you get really easily car sick, could do what? You could read, right? Not as easy in this day. You know why? Because the roads are rough. It's a deserty wilderness road that's full of rocks and ruts and you're bouncing and the horses are pulling and 
jostling the, 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 the chariot constantly, and it's, it's a rough scenario. Most likely, uh, the word sitting is not just referring to him sitting, but it's also the idea that the chariot's probably sitting. He stopped, and he's reading. He's on the side of the road, and he's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. Now, one other piece of data that you need to, to, to understand. When we think about chariots today, we think about like Ben-Hur, right? I mean, it's that time frame, right? And the chariot, we got this guy in this little teeny chariot, right? And he's got his reins and the horses are pulling and he's riding furiously. That's the picture you get, right? That's a pretty accurate picture if the chariot is a war chariot. Does that make sense? If it's a war chariot, it's a one-man operation. Two wheels, shelter, horses, tongue, and reins. That's not what he's in. This guy is, a, is an important official in Candace's regime. Most likely, he's in this chariot not alone and certainly most likely not driving it. Picture more limousine. Does that make sense? Picture more like stretch limousine. This, he most likely has a driver and most likely has five, six, seven attendants along with him. He's important. And so he's got people taking care of him. Probably slaves. But there's people there with him. But he's had the driver most likely pulled over, sitting, and he's already seated, but he's sitting there on the side of the road most likely reading. And the idea is he's reading and wrestling with it, but he's reading it aloud. The Scriptures tell us he's reading it aloud, which was very common that day. But he's reading loud enough most likely that, that Philip can hear from a distance he's re what he's reading. But he's reading it to the people in his chariot as well. So it's, 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 it's focused on Philip, but it's highly unlikely that he's by himself. <clears throat> so verse 28 again, And returning, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 29, and the Spirit says to Philip once again, In effect, this is why I brought you here. Is that what he's saying? This is why I brought you here. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Hey, Philip, I brought you here for this reason. I brought you out to the desert for this reason. I brought you 70 or so miles all the way south over the last week, week and a half for this moment, for this guy. Period. Nothing else. Just this. Go over and join the chariot. <clears throat> I love how Philip responds. Verse 30. He doesn't say, um, are you sure, God? Does he? He doesn't say, well, I don't know if I can even speak his language. Does he? He's not very Moses-esque here, is he? <laughs> I mean, it's totally different. God says to Philip, Go over through the angel of the Lord. Go over and what? Chat with him? Chat with the guy in the chariot? Is that what he said? Join the chariot. <laughs> I love the way God puts it. Hey, Philip, walk over there and get in. I mean, that's pretty bold. This Ethiopian eunuch is, again, in the hierarchy of the government. I mean, can you imagine? Yes, go over the limo with the embassy plates and climb in. Serious? And how does Philip respond? Words mean something, don't they? He runs. He ran over to the chariot. He boldly ran over to the chariot. There is anticipation, there is trust, there is excitement. I mean, use whatever words you want to. Do you, do you sense it? This is Philip, like, ministry, I'm there! Do you hear it there? 
Ministry opportunity, woo, this is what I exist for. Is that what you hear? I mean, it kind of drips off the page, doesn't it? He runs across the road. I, it, this is just me. I suspect he didn't look both ways. I expect he just jutted right out there, straight across. It says he ran to him, heard him reading the prophet or Isaiah the prophet, and asked a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? Simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? Why is that a simple question? And yet an important question. Here's why. It's simple. Do you understand what you're reading? But it's important. Why? Because if the Spirit's not at work, what? He's not going to understand. Right? I mean, I remember somebody once said, you're not going to understand it because you're reading somebody else's mail. So you don't understand it. And more so, it's because you don't have the Spirit. How can you possibly understand it? If the Spirit's not working in you, how can you possibly understand it? So what does Philip say? Hey, do you understand that? I hear you reading. Do you understand what you're reading? And the only reason why Philip says it is because he's wanting to get into the chariot, right? The eunuch's response I find especially intriguing. And here's why I find it especially intriguing. I know none of us have this problem, but you ever heard the word pride? What's the natural response? Of course I do. Why would I admit to being stupid, ignorant? Why would I do that? But what is his response? It's a stunning response, isn't it? When you think about it from a humanity standpoint, his response is what? How can I? Unless someone guides me. Which, by the way, is uh, interesting by an unsaved person, an interesting almost quote of the scriptures, isn't it? That hasn't been written yet. How shall they... Yeah, unless there's a preacher, right? How shall they hear unless there's a preacher or a proclaimer? How can I understand this unless someone guides me? And so as a result, now remember, the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't have a clue who this Philip guy is. He just saw him walking down the road. But he does what? He invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. I'm sorry, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And clearly, the eunuch doesn't have a clue what he's reading. Because it goes on, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? He doesn't get it. He's like, he's looking at this. And by the way, back up. Where did he come from? Jerusalem. Why did he go to Jerusalem? To worship. Where did he get this text from? Most likely from the temple, being on the outside, the, the Gentile part of the temple. And he heard it being taught. And he wrote it down furiously. And he's reading what he heard messages on, but he doesn't get it. And so he asks the question, it's a simple question, to Philip, Philip, is this text talking about the writer of the book, Isaiah, or is it talking about someone else? Why would he ask the question, why doesn't he not know that it's about Jesus? Because the message he heard was not about Jesus, was it? It wasn't about Jesus at all. It was about something totally different. I wasn't there, but it certainly wasn't about Jesus. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture in Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. In other words, what, is, what, what, what Luke is recording is this, most likely. He opens his mouth, starting with Isaiah 53, he shows how Isaiah 53 is talking about all the events he saw in Jerusalem. All the events that took place that, that recently transpired in Jerusalem. And he shows him how 
that all these things, not just the scripture, he just started here, but then he jumps all over the place in the Old Testament, right? He's jumping all over. He's going to Isaiah chapter 7. He's going all the way through Isaiah 39 through 66, which are called the suffering, we call the suffering servant uh, passages um, that are looking at Jesus as a suffering servant. He takes him over to a, a variety of other texts, maybe even all the way over to Genesis chapter 3. He takes him to a variety of texts and shows him how, as Jesus himself said, it all does what? It all points to me, Jesus said. And so Philip immediately begins to interweave this text with all the rest of the scriptures with the, the truth of who this Jesus is. And now, go ahead. Yeah, because he's in the temple. He's in, he's in the temple. This is before, this, during, during Passover I'm talking about. This is before Christ is crucified. He, he's going to be crucified on Sunday. Or, I'm sorry, on Friday. He's, he's crucified, but he's not resurrected yet. He resurrects on Sunday. Passover took place on Friday, right? And so he's hearing a message from the Jewish leaders. And so it's not going to be a Jesus-esque message. Okay? Yeah. Does that help? Okay, good. <clears throat> So as they're traveling, now they're moving, right? So the conversation is going from just a reading of the text. Now there's this conversation going, and Jesus is, or I'm sorry, Philip is explaining Jesus to him. The, the, the chariot is moving once again, and as they're moving, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch is just drinking all this in, verse 36, as they're going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Whoa. What is he saying? What's the eunuch saying? He's saying, I believe. He's saying, I identify with Jesus. Jesus saved my soul. I have received the gospel. Jesus is my redeemer. That's the implication of the text, which is why verse 37 in the King James and other older translations exists because it's clarifying that point. What prevents me from being baptized? I wish to identify, and who is he identifying with up to this point in time? Candace, right? His, his, his total identity is Candace. What he is saying is, I'm going to continue to work for Candace, because he's on his way, right? I'm going to continue to work for Candace, but my identity now is Jesus. My identity is Jesus, Taking care of her riches is just a job, but my identity is Jesus. Now, is there evidence that that is his perspective? We'll see it in just a second. At this point in time, hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they went, both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In front of the rest of the charioteers, if I use that term, he declares his new identity. He identifies with his Redeemer. He identifies with what Christ has done. That's a good question, and it may very well be uh, Tom, that, that he discussed the ordinance of, of baptism with him. It may not be. And here's why I say it may not be. Uh, baptism was actually a very common thing, not just in Christianity, but in all, all, all the other religions. A lot of them uh, uh, practice baptism. That identification to uh, your religion and the gods, God or gods of your religion. So he may have, he may not have. Most likely he did. Uh, discuss it, but be that as it may, either way, even if he didn't, it was it was very commonly understood. Um, but he he is basically saying, I identify with Jesus, in the same way that that Rahab did in the Old Testament, in the exact same way that that Rahab did in the Old Testament. I was a Canaanite, but my identity now is what is with with the Hebrew God Yahweh. He's my identity. She rejected her old identity and turned to her new identity. Uh, she was still Canaanite in blood. 
but in reality, in essence, she now no longer was Canaanite. She was a Yahwehist or identified with Yahweh. In the same way, he's still an Ethiopian, he's still a eunuch, he still has his job, but his identity now is Jesus. And so he's baptized. Verse 39, and when they came out of the water, you would think, once again, where do we start out? Philip is where in the beginning? Samaria, having a great ministry, you'd think that's the place to be, right? That's the place where Philip should be. No, God says, no, I want you down the desert. Totally counterintuitive. And then, right after they come out of the water, you'd think, wouldn't you? The best place for Philip would be where? Back in the chariot doing what? Talking to him and ministering to him discipling him, to use the modern term that we, that we uh, throw about a lot today, you'd expect that to be the case, right? Wouldn't it make most sense? That he gets back in the chariot and maybe even travels all the way down to Ethiopia and maybe start another church down there with the eunuch. Wouldn't that make more sense? No. Totally counterintuitive. Totally counter the way we think. As soon as they come out of the water, as soon as they come out of the water, Philip is still wet. And he is supernaturally taken from the eunuch and deposited somewhere else. Interesting, isn't it? And what's even more counterintuitive, Philip is carried away by the Spirit of the Lord and the eunuch is really depressed that he's gone. Right? And wouldn't that be what you expect? Oh man, I was just starting to learn. Where'd he go? Wouldn't that make more sense? No, totally counterintuitive. What happens? And the eunuch saw him no more. And what? Went on his way rejoicing as he continued traveling. Got in the chariot again and started traveling back down south into Africa, but everything has changed. Hasn't it? Suddenly, before then, he's like, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. Is it talking about Isaiah? Is it talking about somebody else? I don't know. I wish somebody could explain it to me. I'm, I'm flummoxed. It's like a conundrum for me. And now Philip comes, and, and the Lord uses Philip to help him understand. Right? The basics of Christ. And then Philip's taken away. He's identified with Christ. Philip's gone. And his response is what? Rejoicing. And the implication, and not just the implication, but the text is really saying, not that he rejoiced at that moment. When it says he went on his way rejoicing, you know what that means? It means it's just ongoing. He's in an ongoing way just filled up with rejoicing in what, what he's learned. And not just what he's learned, but who he's now united with. He probably doesn't understand that. I mean, how many years did it take before you started understanding what it meant to be united with Christ? I'm still learning what it means to be united with Christ. My goodness. This guy didn't know much. But what he knew caused him to what? Continue to rejoice. He was overwhelmed with rejoicing. And by the way, if we go outside the scriptures and into, into world history, you know, there does show up a, a church. Yeah, the Coptic church shows up. And flourishes for quite a while. Most likely from the Ethiopian eunuch. The Lord caught a hold of his heart. The Lord brought him from death to life. And once again, what do we see? When someone goes from death to life, what happens? Yeah, stuff changes, right? What did you say, Jim? Yeah, he starts proclaiming, doesn't he? And he's, th he's thrilled. He's enthralled. He's rejoicing. He's moved. He's captivated with Jesus. Yeah. 
was founded. How, how is it that if he is separated from doctrinal teaching, how is he able to maintain doctrinal integrity? That's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. How does that happen? Well, <clears throat> we can we can only kind of suppose, but most likely, I suspect, most likely what began to happen is he probably began to take more journeys north and start going back up and learning more, going back, learning more, going back. And we know that the letters that, that Paul and Peter and James and John wrote were cyclical letters and they were being copied in the churches and some of them started filtering down that direction because there was a growing body of believers down there. Um, so, you know, I suspect that at first probably the eunuch was coming back up occasionally because he was coming up to worship. And as he's connecting now with believers instead of the Jew Judaism, he's connecting with Christians, he's getting some of those letters and taking those letters back with him. That's what I suspect probably happened. Does that make sense? No. Mm -mm. No, I think it's more he's getting a hold of those letters that are being, that are being spread. Just like other churches were as well. It's just taking a little bit longer for him to get there. But he's probably got other scriptures, not just this little section that he's, he's um, reading. And I suspect, if I may just say this, I suspect as Philip is taking him to other scriptures, what do you think he's probably doing? He's writing those down as well. He's writing those scriptures down as well. So he's going down with all these scriptures that he and Philip just talked about as well, most likely. So that's the initial part, and then later on he brings more. So then all of a sudden, verse 40, Philip finds himself at Azotus, which, by the way, is probably about, a, this is all approximation, but maybe 20 to 30 miles away from northwest, uh, little west, mostly north of where he was with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's transported over there somehow, supernaturally. What does Philip do? It says what? But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through Azotus, he did what? He preached the gospel. And then as he went to the next town, what did he do? He preached the gospel. And in the next town, what did he do? He preached the gospel, and eventually he arrives up at Caesarea by the sea. That's what we call it today, Caesarea by the sea. He arrives up at Caesarea by the sea, and when he arrives at Caesarea by the sea, what does he do? He preaches the gospel and he shows up later on in, in Acts 21 at Caesarea by the sea ministering in a church. That Where do you think the church came from? He's preaching the gospel. And there he is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 21. In the midst of persecution. We can't forget that, right? But as he's moving his way up... What is he doing? Well, the easy answer is he's preaching the gospel, right? But the more important answer is this. When the Spirit has come upon you, you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where did, what happens? God takes him down to the desert road. He preaches the gospel. He takes him... Over to Azotus, what does he do? Preaches the gospel. As he begins to travel north, he's planning on traveling all the way back to Samaria. He's doing what? All the way. Preach the gospel. Next town. Preach the gospel. Next town. Preach the gospel. Next, next town. Preach the gospel. And eventually he gets to Caesarea, and he stays in Caesarea and preaches the gospel. Why? Because God told him, he, God commanded him, he needs to do that, right? No. Because he had the Holy Spirit with power, what happened? He preached the gospel because he had the gospel. He preached the gospel. Same thing as the Ethiopian eunuch. He has the gospel and he has the spirit. And what happens? He rejoices. Now, it's easy to say the rejoicing is just like, woohoo, right? No. His rejoicing is what, you think? A preaching of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. He's proclaiming Jesus. To who? All, of, all his chariot mates. I suspect, if I may, be, if I'm, if I may 
take liberties. If the chariot mates didn't get saved, they probably wanted to kill the guy by the time they got down there because it's going to be like like a four or five week journey. Can you imagine four or five weeks with a guy that incessantly won't stop talking about something they're not interested in? You get the point? Now maybe they got saved. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that chariot is the moving church. <laughs> That'd be something. That's the church of Ethiopia moving on its way down back home. Mobile church. Pretty cool. The point of the text is several fold. If I may just say this, I, first thing I thought of when I read this text. You leave today and you drive home. Most of us, when you drive home, you're going to drive past a lot of different churches. And some of them are going to be really big, right? And some of them are going to be places that look like things are really happening, right? Right? And you come from little old Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. We should never be so arrogant to think that something's got to be really big to be God's. Do you realize that? I mean, it is stunning to see that God took Philip from a booming church movement, exploding church movement, to go talk to one guy. And just to be with him for just a little bit. before he starts traveling back. And it's interesting, the text doesn't describe he had any success in all those little, little towns, does it? He just preached while he was there and moved on, preached while he was there, moved on, preached while he was there, moved on, preached while he was there. We don't have any evidence he ever had any success except for in Caesarea. But what did he do? Because the Spirit was in and the truth was in him, what happened? The truth came out. It couldn't be contained because light cannot be stopped. <laughs> Can it? The light overcomes the darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome the light. And Philip had the light and so it came out. The eunuch had the light. It came out. Not about size. Not about volume. It's about the light, isn't it? It's interesting, we get all caught up in, in little versus big, growing versus not growing, explosive versus not explosive, or in some cases even growing versus shrinking. That, that's not something scriptures ever show as the people getting excited about or getting worked up over, does it? Scriptures demonstrate people getting worked up over Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Getting excited over Jesus. Getting excited over the gospel. Because that's the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? Not the church. The church is a tool, right? It's a tool that God uses. The gospel is what gets the Ethiopian eunuch rejoicing, isn't it? The gospel is what moves Philip, isn't it? And behind both of those is what? The Holy Spirit at work. Every time. On the, on the other side of the coin, <clears throat> we've got the guy Simon we saw before. He's all worked up over gimmicks, isn't he? Isn't that interesting? He's all jacked up over gimmicks, methods, how to make things happen. Philip and the disciples in the previous text are wound up over the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's irrelevant. Big, small, growing, shrinking. It's irrelevant. All that's relevant is Jesus. If nobody receives Jesus, <laughs> if everyone does Jesus, 
the gospel. So, <clears throat> it's an interesting perspective. But I'm also challenged by the text when I see Philip and the eunuch both enthralled with Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philip, we saw what? How did he respond? First? Before then. How did he respond? He left. When Jesus said, go, he what? When, I'm sorry, the angel of the Lord said, go, he did what? He went. Now, I'm not saying the angel's, uh, angel of the Lord's going to appear to you and say, Ken, I need you to go to Cambodia. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Because it won't. But God does speak through his word, doesn't he? And he's told us many things in his word. And I'm challenged because we are called, aren't we? In the scriptures? We are called. When Philip was called, he what? He went. And then, when he came upon the Ethiopian eunuch, he was called to go, right? And he what? He ran. I, 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 I'm challenged by the contrast because here's how the average Christian today is when, <clears throat> when they see an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, they're like, well, I don't know. Should I? Should I? What is he going to think? Right? Or maybe I don't know what to say. And we end up running the other way. We don't say anything. We go to another town, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, don't say anything. Go to the next town, metaphorically speaking, we don't say anything. We meet the next person, we don't say anything. Then we meet the next person, we don't say anything. Then we meet the next person, we don't say anything. Then we meet the next person, we don't say anything. It just goes on for weeks and months and years and decades. And yet, when somehow we can say, when we're asked, if we're a Christian, we say, yeah. If another Christian asks us, yeah, I'm a Christian. Somehow the disconnect is there. It's a strange disconnect, isn't it? When you look at the scriptures, it's not a strange disconnect when we just look at ourselves or we look at other people around us. But it's a strange disconnect when you look at the scriptures when we see Paul say, the love of Christ controls me. Isn't that what's happening with Philip? When we see Paul, or we hear Paul saying, because I know the fear of the Lord, I what? Persuade men. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? But somehow, we just understand it, but we ignore it. Right? We understand it. It's not that nobody understands it. We all understand that. We're not an Ethiopian eunuch where we say, I don't understand that. We understand what, what Paul was saying. And we look at all the examples running throughout the scriptures and we understand it. We just ignore it. I mean, I'm even stunned when Paul was in prison in Philippians chapter 1 and he says, you know what? <clears throat> I've been out preaching the gospel and ministering, traveling and proclaiming the gospel everywhere I can go, establishing churches, leading people to Christ. It's been exciting. And now in prison I can't do it anymore, but I'm rejoicing. Why? In fact, this is the best thing that could have happened to me. Why? Remember? Well, he's speaking to the prisoners, number one, but this first thing, or number two, but the first thing he points out, you're right, but the first thing he points out is others now are what? Are preaching the gospel. Right? And not only are others preaching the gospel, there's people preaching the gospel even with wrong motives. Now, the implication is not that it's the wrong gospel. They're preaching the right gospel, but they're doing it for the wrong motives. But they're still preaching. And so he's rejoicing. He's going to continue to rejoice. That's what he says. But people are preaching the gospel. They're proclaiming the gospel. But what's interesting, I find, is that too often in the church today, we are, we're not Phillips. We're not the Ethiopian eunuch style guy. We're, we're probably closer to Simon, then we are Philip or the Ethiopian eunuch. Because Simon is looking at Christianity for what's in it for him. <laughs> Isn't he? 
I mean, how many times do we even hear the gospel being preached and it's presented as, as an escape hatch from hell, right? So you can have a mansion in the city with the streets of gold just to cut to the chase. That's all about what's in it for me, isn't it? I mean, it's a stunning contrast, isn't it? That too often we as Christians can be more like Simon than we are like Philip or the Ethiopian eunuch. But yet I see in the scriptures that when the Spirit moves in people's lives, what happens? What do we see in the previous text? The persecuted Christians were driven up to Samaria, and what happened? Church got planted up there, right? And people are getting saved everywhere. The gospel's being proclaimed. The point about people getting saved, that's, that's outside of everything, but it happened. But the people were proclaiming Christ. Why were they proclaiming Christ? Because they were willing to suffer persecution for Jesus, right? And why were they willing to suffer persecution for Jesus? What's that? Because they loved him. And why did they love him? Because he loved him first. Right? And so the object of their love poured out of their mouth. Didn't it? And didn't it for Philip? And didn't it for the Ethiopian eunuch? Oh, that Christ would be the love of our lives. Oh, that Christ would be the first principles of the way we view our lives. That the love of Christ and the light in the midst of darkness would be our passion and our zeal. No matter where God takes us, as you're going, what? Make disciples. Isn't that the point? Isn't that exactly what Philip is doing? Oh, that that would be the working of the Spirit in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know, left to our own devices, we will certainly be just like Simon. We will not be people who are enthralled with Jesus, enthralled with the gospel like Philip was and like the Ethiopian eunuch ended up being. We know that, left to our own devices, we'll be more like Ananias and Sapphira, who are also just like Simon. We know, left to our own devices, we'll be just like Judas, which, were, which was just like Simon and Ananias and Sapphira. We desperately need your spirit to open our hearts, open our eyes, draw us close, change us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.